So um, we have a great privilege to hear from um, a dear brother and a friend of mine who I've gotten to meet um, or gotten to serve with rather in Ethiopia on a couple of different trips. This is Matt Adams. Everybody say hello. That is his glorious family, the Adams family, and we can all snap together. Yeah. So we'll get it out of our system. Hey, um, so two things. Uh, one is uh, after church, uh, it, we most of you guys know where we live. All of you, maybe. Um, if, if you're a guest here and you don't know where we live, come see me if you would like to come and spend a little bit of time with, um, with Matt and his family so you can get to know them. Um, our house is kind of open season um, today. So you can't stay for dinner because we can't afford to feed everybody. But uh, you would be welcome if we could. Um, let me let me read you a text uh, that explains why um, why Matt is Matt and his family are here. Um, John says of some brothers, um, he says they have gone out for the sake of the name. They've been sent out from us for the sake of the name of Christ. We've gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from Gentiles. Therefore, we the church ought to support people like these so that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So Matt and his family are going to go work in Ethiopia to build up the body of Christ. And I wanted you to hear from him so that we can be a part of his work um, in whatever that looks like. So, brother, would you come? And, um, yeah. Y'all want to say hi? This, it is so fantastic to be here. I love it. I love the... The... The informality and the formality. You know, like, I love the mix. I love to worship God and exalt his name and hold it like we just talked about in the liturgy, like, with value. Like, we hold it up high. He is the king of all. And yet, we can just be real. And brothers and sisters here this morning. So... Our text is going to be the Great Commission, Matthew 28, and I'm going to focus on um, just I'm going to focus on verse 18 and then 19. But I want to I, I should tell you what we're going to be doing first. Um, I had a beautiful PowerPoint prepared <laughs> with wonderful pictures of all the ministry that we're doing and. And my family, and, and I asked Will, do you have PowerPoint? He's like, yeah, well, we do, but it doesn't work. So, so you just need to hear me this morning. Um, I, I was in a ministry training leaders international, like Will has traveled with many times. And I've, I've recently made a switch, our family has made a switch to a mission agency called Global Outreach. Our mission has not changed. We're going to be doing exactly the same things with Training Leaders International. In fact, we're going to even still be working with them. I'm going to teach at all their sites in Ethiopia. Um, We just felt like Global Outreach was a better sending organization for the sake of my family's care. They just know how to do families on the mission field a little better than Training Leaders International does. Training Leaders International focuses more on the academics and, and teachers and professors and pastors going to the field, whereas Global Outreach cares more, uh, they're able and equipped to care more for missionaries, family, 
So that's a huge change for us. Um, we'd love to tell you more about what we're doing. You know, come see us at the back. I've got a little table back there. And we have a website. It's at the bottom of all those brochures. Not on the prayer card. Oh yeah, I think. It's just called Ascribe and Declare. Ascribeanddeclare.com. That's our family blog. We post stuff there. We post pictures and videos and stuff like that. So please go there and really get a um, visual representation of what we're doing. Um, so yeah, we're, we've been traveling with them for about four years with TLI, and now we're actually making the transition to move over there full time. So we've been preparing for that, and we're very excited. So it's a blessing to be here this morning. Will, did I need to say anything else? No, I don't think so. Uh, what's your favorite color? <laughs> <laughs> no, so I also want to preface my sermon this morning by saying, I'm, I, I don't intend to take you to seminary this morning, but you might feel like you're going to seminary this morning because I wanted to do th- something a little different. I don't normally te- teach and preach necessarily a topical sermon, but I'm a visitor. It's a one-time thing for me, so I get to pick anything I preach on, so it's kind of topical. In, it's in missions, and it's also going to bring you a little deeper into what we're looking at and studying in missiology, some of the issues that we're dealing with in the world that we live in. So hang on. And, and I think also I had some charts and graphs in my PowerPoint. I think God was like, um, there's not enough pillows and blankets for everybody to take a nap this morning. So he just like cut all that out. He's <laughs> like, just go. Go for it. So, as always, I'm going to pray and start us off. And Lord, with, with anything that I want to say this morning that's not in line with your Holy Spirit, that's not in line with your word, that's not the agenda for your great mission in the world, would it just fall to the ground and be burned up? God, I just pray that your word would go forth this morning that your agenda would be on the table, that everybody here would get a sense of what you would have them do in your great plan in this world that we live in, in this community, in this church, in their families. So be with me as I preach this morning and be with these wonderful people as they listen. Have the laborious job of listening. In your name I pray, amen. Okay, I'm going to start off with an easy question. Do you believe the gospel can transform lives? Yes. Good. Do you believe the gospel can transform families? Yes. It's a little harder because, you know, we all have that weird uncle or, you know, somebody that's out there, the cousin that's... We have a black sheep somewhere. Here... Do you believe that the gospel can transform societies? That's even harder. Because we look around, we see all the brokenness, the poverty, the corruption, trash littering our streets, war, famine, all these things. And it seems impossible. It's like... You look at the news, you're like, 
thinking about the billions of people on earth, like how can this be redeemed? How can this ever (laughs) be reconciled to Christ? So I think most Christians, whether they believe that society can be transformed or not, do not live that way. We don't orient our lives toward that belief in faith. So a lot of us don't even try. But it's interesting because transformed individuals certainly can transform families. Those families make up a society. So the more transformed, gospel-centered, Holy Spirit-driven families we have in a society, our our community is going to look different. Just naturally. It has no choice. There's no other option. Because those people are the ones making laws. They're, They're small business owners. They're, you know, driving the economy. So it's culture, it's art, it's music, it's institutions, schools, and laws will become more and more just and righteous because light always overcomes darkness. It's just a fact. So I'm going to give you a brief rundown, incomplete, very generalized history of where we are in the mission world. And that is, in case you don't know, there, the majority of Christians do not have an optimistic outlook on the nations, on societies coming to Christ. Most Christians believe that everything is steadily declining, that Christianity is waning, that in the end, Christ will return not to a triumphant church, but to a church that is a tiny remnant of a few people who have persevered, persevered through an intense trial, just waiting, holding on, gripping, clutching for dear life to see their king's face. That's the state of missions. And missionaries set, go out with that understanding. Everything's getting worse. I'm not even going to bother with that. The only thing that matters is their heart. Me and Jesus. If I can just get to that point, then I've accomplished my job. So missions has been reduced, I'll say, in this term. Like, it has been narrowed down to evangelism. Great. I love it. We need evangelism. It's important. It's necessary. It's the beginning of the kingdom. It's entrance into the kingdom. We have to have that. It's how individuals become gospel transformed people to transform their families. So we have to have that. It's really wonderful. But going back to the trajectory that we're talking about, not all Protestant missionaries have seen the world that way. We live in a time that's kind of actually been changing. We, we never, you know, sometimes we like to think that the whole world or Christianity has functioned and thought like we have in this state now, but that's not the case. I'm going to give you a couple examples. There have been many Christian missionaries. In fact, the majority of missionaries in the past were optimistic about the trajectory of God's kingdom on earth and the spread of the gospel on earth before Christ's coming. For example, missionaries like John Elliott, David Brainerd, William Carey, Adniram Judson, David Livingston, theologians like Charles Spurgeon, B.B. Warfield, John Calvin, 
Jonathan Edwards, Augustine, you know, the famous ones. In fact, it seems like missionaries and theologians who have made the greatest impact in human history not only held optimistic beliefs about God working presently on earth to disciple the nations, but they were driven by them. It actually was the motivation for their entire ministries. And these renowned theologians and missionary pioneers from the past 2,000 years believe that Christ is not just looking for people's hearts, but that he is holistically expanding his kingdom on earth over church and over society. Pre-20th century missionaries, so missionaries before our century, in the previous century, they put this on display in their lives for the whole world to see. They basically performed their beliefs. It's vital to realize that these... I'm going to give you some examples. John Eliot, who I just mentioned. From the 1600s, he is considered one of the very first Protestant missionaries after the the Reformation. One of the greatest revivals of Christian doctrine the world has ever seen. This Puritan pastor believed, quote, The Lord's time is come to advance and spread his blessed kingdom, which shall in his season fill all the earth. So this pastor and missionary labored his whole life for the salvation of Massachusetts and the Algonquian Indians living in his settlement. Think about that. He said that. I labor for the salvation of Massachusetts. He was, he was saying not just an individual person. I'm laboring for this entire, what? What do they call it back then? A province? I don't know. Settlement? State? In 1660, he earned the title Apostle to the American Indian because he was traveling on foot and horseback, um, spending his life, spending his strength, all of his energy, everything he had to the utmost through pouring rain, through storms, through weather, facing sickness, facing death, death of loved ones all the time to bring the gospel to the Indians. Because the gospel was so successful among the Algonquian, those spirit-filled natives were no longer welcome in their villages. They were no longer welcome in their pagan society. They asked Elliot, what are we supposed to do? So they asked him to help us to start new villages. So he actually, he looked around, okay, well, what, what do we do if we start a new village? Like, I don't know what to do. So he went to the Word, and he started helping them to establish towns, communities, on the Word of God, based on the Word of God. Their culture, their ways of living, their schools, medical facilities, even their government was founded on the law of God. And together they built up entire towns of Christian Indians who prayed together, worshipped together, centered their entire lives. The town was centered around the kingdom of God, with the church at the center. After years of toil, teaching and evangelism, he ended up training many Algonquian Indians to aid in his work. They were all going out, and by 1675, there were 14 praying towns. There were 14 full towns of villages, of Indians, that were now converted, 
loving God, worshiping God, praying together. They became known affectionately, which is unusual. You usually get a bad monitor as praying towns. It's it's also incredibly important that if you know anything about history, these were not anything like the Indian schools that were set up later to erase the Indian out of the Indians. The exact opposite. John Eliot has been associated with that wrongly because of the world we live in. He was there, hated that kind of thing. He hated it. He learned their languages. He, he um, translated. Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. So, among the praying towns, he worked for the general welfare of the Indians. He brought cases to court to fight for Indian property rights. He pleaded for convicted, wrongfully convicted prisoners, fought the selling of Indians to slavery, fought to secure lands and streams for Indian use. He established schools for Indian children and adults. He translated the Bible and 20 other books into their language. His accomplishments are truly astounding. Eliot's work, I believe, should be like the standard of missionary textbooks these days, but it's not. Hardly anyone knows what he did. And they would, those towns might be here, except for in 1675, King Philip raged a devastating war against the Indians, which began an irreversible fate for their villages. Still, Eliot visited those people, those displaced people now, and he discipled the converts, the remaining converts, until his death. And this is what he wrote. The design of Christ in these last days is not to destroy nations, but to gospelize them. Eliot believed the gospel would engulf nations because, quote, the kingdom of the world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. I love it. He's one of my favorites. Um, So much more could be said. So much more. Just go read his biography. William Carey, popular name. Not a lot of people know about what he did. William Carey, 1761 to 1834. So another um, generation after John Eliot. Became a missionary with the explicit mission to disciple the nation of India. (laughs) Can you just imagine one guy? He's just like, you're you're looking at all these people. You're like, I'm going to go disciple the nation of India. (laughs) He would just be like, do you know how big India is? (laughs) You go there, you, you know, even if you said, I'm going to go disciple LaGrange, people would look at you like you're insane. Like, do you know that, you know, there's heathens there? Like this. Anyway, he was directly influenced by John Eliot, Jonathan Edwards, and David Brainerd, and became known as the father of the modern evangelical missions movement. So much could be said of this man that it would take a semester just to talk about his life. I'm just going to give you a rundown of his resume as fast as I can. And every one of these things, we would all consider like our life accomplishment. Carrie learned Sanskrit and translated the Bible into Bengali, spoken by millions of Indians, and it became the official language of India. Supervised the translation of the Bible into 33 other languages wrote dictionaries, multiple, this plural, okay, wrote dictionaries for those, grammars in four Indian languages, 
started the Horticultural Society of India, wrote numerous scientific papers and journals in Bengali, founded 19 mission stations, established more than 100 schools, which included education for girls, strongly opposed by the Hindu upper class, started two colleges, not Bible colleges, just colleges, just started them because they didn't have them. He started the first newspaper in India, which became the prototype for news distribution in the whole country. And famously, he fought hard against sati, the sacrificial burning of widows on their husband's funeral ashes. And his work eventually won the day and sati was abolished in the late 1800s. He also started countless churches and Sunday schools for children. Astounding. Astounding. Of course, Carey's road was not easy. Most of us do not have the courage to follow in his footsteps, nor could we. Like most missionaries prior to the 20th century, his journey was marked by unspeakable hardship and suffering. He lived through the death of three of his children. His first wife never recovered the loss of her babies and ultimately took her life. Carey would remarry to lose his next wife 13 years later. His third wife was with him until his death. As a result of this commitment to meeting both societal and spiritual needs, he became probably the most influential person in India's history. But as I speak, what once was a burgeoning kingdom expanding for our Lord, it is now 99% pagan. I have thoughts on why that's the case. Here's the interesting thing. That's not to demean his work. The interesting is nearly all missionary camps, every theology adopts Carey and Elliot and Jonathan Edwards and their colleagues as their founding fathers, their grand exploits, including printing, language development, Bible translation, teaching, preaching, and the transformation of entire societies inspire missionaries to forsake the world and travel to a foreign land for the sake of the gospel. However, their theologies, their eschatology, their belief that the nations can and will be discipled, which was their driving force and their motivation, rarely make it into any missionary book. Rarely do we even know that that's what was their motivation. In other words, optimism is not the driving force in missions today. Most missionaries believe that eschatology or the belief about our future is a throwaway doctrine that we can just leave and go. But whether Christians and missionaries know it or not, their practices are driven by their theology. In fact, most, most missionaries aren't even aware that their thoughts about the future and Jesus coming back is actually a driving force about their mission. In other words, what they believe about the future coming of Christ and the time between now and that time, about ethnic Israel, about whether or not things are getting better or worse, whether the kingdom is expanding or contracting, all influence how we go about God's mission. So for the past century, the mission of the church has been driven by a short-term mindset with the goal of rapid multiplication, not the long-term, slow-growing, from-the-ground-up 
building institutions that last mindset that characterized our theological forefathers. The primary goal in missions today is the main, in the main, in the main, is to bring back Christ as soon as possible. They think if we evangelize this group of people and this people group and this people group, when every group of people has a small percentage, we've actually identified a percent, which is 2%. When each people group has a 2% ratio of Christians, evangelical Christians, then Christ will come back. And I think if we think about that, honestly, we would find that quite silly, actually. Who is to know? Who can judge 2%? We don't know our brother's heart sitting next to us. How do we know an entire people group? So, and if you've ever been on, this, on the ground of a quote-unquote Christian nation, even when there's churches all around you, a lot of times the people that you're meeting are not very Christian-like. So missionaries develop methods that prioritize those goals. In order to, like for an illustration, in order to sail fast through the ocean, a person must heave all unnecessary cargo overboard and cut all the anchors. That's fine and dandy in an emergency, but it's not a winning battle plan. In this case, the first things to go are training pastors because that takes time and energy, and money. And a lot of times those pastors aren't the pastors that you want to be putting in a church. It, it's, it's actually a difficult, messy job to do. So it's laborious, and that's not fast and easy, and it doesn't produce cool missionary letters to post back to your people. Um, other things that, that go are um, buildings. Church buildings, we don't care about that anymore. Just meet in your backyard or wherever you are. You know, schools, hospitals, discipleship of believers, all of these things go to the wayside very quickly because we're trying to do this thing fast. Um, Water projects, those are just left to gospel-denying liberals. I'm not going to fund a water project. That takes, you know, that's not in our, our goal of rapid multiplication church planting model that we have. So, in our generation, to wrap that up, our generation, the mission of the church has been reduced to evangelizing as many people as possible in a given people group and then quickly moving on to the next place as soon as possible. Um, and that's celebrated and it's, and it's like, we call it working ourselves out of a job, you know? There's some really good things in that, like wanting the locals to take the reins, wanting the locals to be raised up to do the work of the mission. That's all wonderful. We want to prioritize that. But it's a long-term game. It is, and I think the Christian, the Christian world and the nations are suffering because all we're doing is dropping gospel bombs in there and then we're heading out. And I have a personal... It's a story of a missionary that I worked with in Tanzania. We lived in Tanzania for three years. And this guy, he's about 60 years old. He had retired from the mission field and he was coming back and he was actually working with some of us younger missionaries. And we're in this village and he's like, yeah, my wife and I used to live in this village. We, we worked here for 20 years 
we labored, we built a, a small church, we were discipling the people, we raised up a couple elders to take our place when we lived. And he's like, this, the, the year that we left, the elder that we put in charge as the pastor took on multiple wives and destroyed the church. And there's nothing left of it. So, it's messy, it's hard, and we have to think long term. But thanks be to God that in recent years there have been many articles, journals, books, calling for recovery of older traditional missionary methods like preaching. I don't know if you know this, but there are actually methods in missiology that forbid preaching and teaching. I mean, it's, I, I can't even, I, I'm lamenting the fact that it is so popular as it is. Discipleship, building schools, hospitals, etc., pointing out the dangers of what I call heart-only missions. This view of the gospel, that Jesus only wants your heart, leads to hazardous mission movements, missions that focus entirely on evangelism and church planting, and of course, we should preach the atonement. We should preach the spiritual aspects of the gospel. We call people to repentance and faith. We want them. We desire. We pray for them to turn their hearts towards a holy God. But in doing so, we don't neglect and forsake the rest of the gospel that touches earth. The gospel that Jesus preached. The gospel of the kingdom. So, <clears throat> I want to turn to our text and I want to see what God's mission is here in this text. And I'm going to say, I think that dusting off the old Puritan biographies might be the course correction the missionary world needs. Matthew 28. I want to, I want to point out a couple things from this text. It's not going to be... Um, probably as coherent as I would have liked. So first I'm going to give a 10,000 foot overview. And then I'm going to look into two things, two observations I have about this text. So, I believe this text is grounded in a beautiful indicative that Christ has conquered. He now has all authority in heaven and earth and And then he gives us what he wants us to do and how to do it. Okay, I'm going to read it quick so I don't get messed up. Jesus said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore, I'm going to change something here, disciple all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you all the days until the end of the age. Does anybody have a version of their Bible that is pre or before 1862. No. Any King James in here? No? Okay. So all of yours then said, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Um, we're going to get to that. So I think it's like this. The first thing is all authority in heaven and earth, right? Previously, I'm going to drop a bomb here. I, 
I don't know, an old covenant era, all the time until Christ, I'm going to say that demons and principalities ruled cities and nations. They demanded sick and twisted pagan worship. And I believe that's why we have the weird types of idolatry that we have. And it's not generalized. This is, the, this is the thing. When you look at history, pagan worship is not this generic thing. They often have names. These gods have names. They demand certain types of worship. You must do this, 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 and this. You must sacrifice your children in this way to me. They, they inflict fear and terror on people. It's very, very, very interesting to think about. Okay? So now I'm going to say Christ has come, cleared the way through his death and resurrection. He has put Satan on a chain. The demons are weak and wounded. And then he says, go disciple all the nations for their good and God's glory. How? By baptizing them in the Trinity, which is the first part of evangelism and conversion, and then teaching them to obey all that Christ commanded. Because, of course, they can't fully obey unless they are, in fact, converted. So we teach the nations to live in God's ways so that everyone, including pagans, are blessed. That is a slow, laborious process that must not be abandoned after the first step of baptism. And then he reassures us with his continued presence and manifest power that he is with us until the end. That is the Great Commission. So the first thing I want us to see this morning is that Christ has all authority on earth. It is easy for us to say that Christ has all authority. He is the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. We put them into songs, but we often spiritualize them away into the heavenly realms. In fact, I was talking to my mother who is adamant about the world getting worse. She's sending me YouTube videos. She's sending me all kinds of things saying, you better be ready. You better be ready. You're going to go into this major time of tribulation. And I say, mom, I said this. You do know that Christ has all authority on earth, right? And she goes, no, he doesn't. You know, I don't believe that. That's literally what she she put her hands on her hips. And that's exactly my wife will tell you, this is my mom's thing. And I was like, mom, open to this. You know, I, I took her to the Great Commission. I said, can you just read that first line? And she was like, like, I mean, literally like blown away. She had no idea. You see, Christ came, died and rose again. And then he said, look here, because I did that. God has given me all the authority on earth. Those demons, those principalities, Satan, they roam around. Yes, they look for who they can devour. Yes, they tempt. But they do not have authority. They don't have authority. And why? It says specifically in the New Testament that the gospel may go forth. So Jesus has come. He has broken the chains. And he has said, now I'm clearing the way. The gospel can go forward into the nations. That is why when we go to nations, we've heard about all the demon possession. We've heard about all the crazy spirit world. But often when you go there, it's not quite as crazy as you might think it is. There's a lot of holdover. Sure, the demons have power, but Christ has cleared a way for us to go and work. And it's not just 
this verse. Ephesians 1, 19 through 23 says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he was raised from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. We're not talking about when Christ comes back. We're not talking about another millennium. Okay, we are talking about when Christ was raised from the dead and exalted. Okay, far above rule and authority and power and dominion and above every other name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. That's the key. We say, oh, in the age to come. Yep, it says, whoa, hey, in this age, in this age. And then it says, and he put past tense. Here's the past tense. He put at his death and resurrection. He put all things under his feet and gave him head over the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So that's us, the church. We now have been given all authority with Christ to go forth and bring the gospel. We tend to live as though Christ's reign and his authority is a future one. But it's present. <clears throat> so what happens? We turn the world over to Satan. Oh yeah, you know what? Satan's got that world. The demons got that city. Demon possession, all of these things. You know, there's no chance... We're just getting worse and worse and the Christians are getting smaller and smaller. So we just got to band together and, you know, get as many Christians as saved as we can before the end comes. Teach them to persevere. What we do is we create secular categories that don't exist, like secular jobs, secular schools, secular institutions. We say, you know what? Those are the governments. Those are, you know, the societies. We literally, it's a proven fact of history that Christians started all of those things. They went to all the other countries. You go to another country, there's a hospital. What does it say? It's like, you know, St. Mary's. It doesn't matter where you are on earth. Christians started almost all the schools. They cared that girls were educated. They fought things like sati and they fought slavery. They ended slavery. And then now we look at schools, institutions, hospitals, and we just think they are, a, they're, they're now government-run things. We have abandoned them. They, they are not ours anymore. But the truth is, <clears throat> they all belong to Christ. And they're supposed to be for the healing of the nations, for the education of our people. We have to start thinking in those terms because when we go to become missionaries, that's the kinds of things we're trying to do. We're not just, you know, calling people to become Christians. We're also there to bless the nations. Amen. So this is interesting. When William Carey was thinking of praying about going to India, he said, he asked, If Jesus were the Lord of India, what would it look like? (laughs) What would be different, you know? And then he acted on it. He prayed for Christ's kingdom to be literally manifested on earth. And why wouldn't we pray that? We were literally taught to pray that. 
Father, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth. That's what our, we work and we pray for. So the Bible says Christ has all authority on earth, not Satan, not just in our hearts. He's king over everything, over, over all things. He's the king of the Muslims. That's, he's the king of Iran. He's reigning over India still, over Ethiopia. And he's the king and judge over America. If we think and act like Satan wins, he will. <laughs> because we just give up the battle. I love it. You know, we, we, you've probably preached this, but like the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And I always think of that as like a, they're, they're attacking. They're not. Gates are defensive. Gates are just standing there. They're doing, they're just gates. So as a church, if we don't attack them, they will just always stand there. There's nothing, like we have to actually offensively go over there and bust them down. Christianity is an offensive movement. Like, and in missions, it's seen as a defensive movement. Like, you're not supposed to go over there and, you know, intrude on their culture, intrude on their schools, their hospitals, their whatever, their lifestyles. Because that's just how they've always done it. You know, that's, they just change their hearts, okay? That's all your job is. And that's just not the way the Bible talks. Like, the way we're supposed to do it is, yes, we love them. We, we learn, affirm them in certain ways. Like, I love that you're seeking protection in this area from the spirits. But, and then we say, but, did you know that Christ actually won the day? He actually defeated the spirits that you're afraid of? And if you put your faith and hope and trust in him, you no longer have to sacrifice your baby? Like, I think it's okay to do that. So, Christianity is an offensive movement. We're advancing the kingdom. We're supposed to be a city on a hill. We're light shining in darkness. Like I say, I love the analogy of light shining in the darkness. You know, I picture this, this, what happens when you're walking through the woods? You guys have probably done this. Um, You're walking through the black woods with a flashlight, you know, and you're walking through there and it's just lit up. Everywhere you look is like light. You're like, this is so cool. But what happens when you walk away? All the darkness envelops you. Envelops that whole area. You've just walked through with a light. And that's what missionaries are doing nowadays. We're walking through with a light. We're just shining it. Yep, people are getting saved. But behind us, darkness is closing in. It's enveloping everything. So we aren't called to walk through the villages with a light. We're called to go into the villages and be a city. If we go into that same patch of woods, we light a bonfire, and then we build up little houses, and we expand that city. It's going to be, the whole forest is going to be lit up. And it's going to stay that way. That's what we're called to do. That's how we transform lives in a dark territory. All right. Next thing. The next thing I want to point out, and this is where we were going to go to seminary. I'm not going to take you there this morning, but I am going to still tell you my main points, which is the next line. Go, therefore, 
and teach or disciple all the nations. So most missionary articles, most missionary preaching deals with a certain thing on this passage, and they usually deal with the word go. Go. It's a participle. And so often they're like, well, you know, they're debating whether it means going or having gone. And I would say it doesn't matter. If you know the rest of the text, then it always means go. It's it's an imperative. It's a command. And we have lots of evidence from this in other places in the Bible where they have this construction. And it's always imperative. It's always a command. And so I'm just going to leave that one and say, I think we're supposed to go. It's an active thing we do, right? From Jerusalem, Samaria to the ends of the earth. People have to do that. But the place and the nations, the last word, a lot of talk has been done on the nations. It's the word ethnos. And I love that. I love this word. Actually, it's, I wanted to talk about it, but I'm not going to. In our text, it's translated correctly. Nations. That's what it means. Every time the New Testament um, quotes an Old Testament passage for the word goyim, which is the word nations, it always uses the word ethnos. It's, it, just means, it just means nations. Okay? And that's very, very important because I'd say a lot of times in our New Testament, nations, or the word ethnos, I should say, the ethne, gets translated as Gentiles. I know that doesn't sound that interesting, but if you got you got to think about this. Nations is a plural word, even in the single. Even in singular, a nation is a plural group of people. A Gentile. When I say, hey, Will, you're a Gentile. What do, what do, what do I mean? I mean... That's a single person. A single Gentile in the singular. See, I told you, you're going to to grammar. Is a single person. A Gentile. So when we say Gentiles, hey, go to the Gentiles, we think of a group of singular people. It's, it's it's, It's unavoidable because they're two different types of words. But the word ethnos in its singular is a plural word. It always means a group of people. And so when we pluralize that word, it means groups of groups of people. Like It's like you're, you're going to multiple nations, and it actually um, changes the meaning and how we understand this text. So it actually is not as crazy for our text here as it is for other places in the New Testament. We have lost the idea that, that God and Jesus care about groups of people. This is the corporate idea. And we really, in our Western cultures and mindset, we buck against it. We just think, no, he needs to save individuals. Okay? But like I said, John Elliott was laboring for the salvation of Massachusetts, a group of people. This is where this is coming in. William Carey was laboring for India. And the argument often goes, well, how do you baptize a nation? Okay. Well, get this. This is very interesting. If you look through the Old Testament, nations are personified. They're anthropomorphized. They're turned into people all the time. Nations run. Nations weep. 
Nations have a baby. Nations do other things. Nations rebel against God and nations repent. That's pretty crazy. Jesus isn't talking about individuals here. He is because individuals make up nations, and that's important. We don't want to lose that. I'm not saying that God doesn't care about your heart. I'm not saying he doesn't want your soul. I am saying the bigger, there's a bigger goal in mind here. So how do we reach the nations? Well, we go to individuals, families, and then societies, right? So here's where I want to focus, though, is actually on the word disciple, not on nations. The word there, it's actually one word, and it's Matthew Tail. It's the word for disciple. And what Jesus has done is turn that word into a verb. It's the only place in the Bible where Jesus has taken the word for his disciples, which is a noun, and turned it into a verb. And that's why our modern translations say, make disciples. Because what Jesus is trying to say is, see those people that are following me, see those people that are obeying me and loving me. He's like, I want you to do that. I want you to make those things. I agree with that. It's true. That's what our... That's why our Bibles translate it, make disciples. If you just took that isolated word, it would be great. But here's the problem. In the Greek, there's no word for make. So the verb in the sentence is actually disciple. But in our versions, it says verb, um, object, which is so make, disciples. In the Greek, nations is the object. So it goes, disciple nations. It's a very subtle difference. And most people don't notice it. And you can see our text and view it rightly. But the Greek text is literally saying, go disciple the nations. That is all it is saying. It is not saying create something, a disciple, an individual, which is how our mind thinks. Our mind thinks that the nations is modifying it's of the nations. Oh, oh. So I'm going to make disciples. Which kind of disciples? The ones of the nations. That's not what this is saying. This is saying, go disciple the nations. That's what, what's very fascinating. If you look this up, I was going to, I was going to give you a wonderful chart. <laughs> 1388 was the first English translation, Webster. And it says, go teach, what, go teach all folks. <laughs> Which I, I don't know folks, but that's, that was just great. All of the rest. So it's like this huge list all the way to 1862. Every single translation. I'm talking like 15 translations. Every single one of them says, go disciple the nations. The only difference is sometimes they say teach. Go teach the nations. Same thing. That's fascinating. In 1862, there's now an even longer list of Bible translations. And I've researched every single one of them. Every Bible translation I can find. Every single one. This is crazy. says, go make disciples of the nations. It just switched in 1862. And I'm talking literal translations, dynamic translations, paraphrases. It is insane to see 
except for two translations, which don't really follow the wording at all, which are terrible. It's, and I just have to ask myself, has that shifted our mindset? Like we, everybody, all these early missionaries, they're all dealing with translations that are coming straight from the Greek and saying, go disciple the nations. And they're like, yes, this is exciting. William Carey said, I went and I went to go disciple the nations because if Jesus is telling me to do that, I have to believe I can. And now, since 1862, every one of us thinks, I gotta go make disciples. I gotta go make disciples. And some of us think, well, you know, maybe in a nation. Well, we're in Asian America, so I'm just gonna do this one. It's a big, big shift. One is individual, one is corporate, one is easy. Just go to your neighbor and make a disciple. And the other seems absolutely impossible. So I hope you can see that I'm not trying to undermine our Bibles. I think you can see what it means if you actually look at it. But this is a, this is a major mind shift that we must have. The object, the direct object of the discipling is a nation. It's a plural group of people. I just had to like, you know, skip through all my notes, right? I love this. So we settle for a few converts, converts in the Tigray region of Ethiopia when Jesus is commanding us to disciple all of Ethiopia. So let me find where we are. Even in the first century, disciples knew that was their mission. Acts 28 says that Paul went about preaching the kingdom of God and teaching everyone to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, good. But then in Romans, he said his goal is to bring about the obedience of nations by word and deed. That is absolutely incredible. William Carey was convinced of his gospel success for all of India because it was his heavenly father's land to be loved and served and ruled over. Miranda and I, we believe that the physical poverty of Ethiopia is directly connected to their theological poverty. When the church doesn't obey the Great Commission, mainly because we're just not taught to, we're not taught the extent of it, the whole community suffers. Street kids sniff gasoline and pick pockets. Widows roam the streets with a baby on their back begging for money. Fathers neglect and abuse their families. When families remain broken, the nation remains broken. I'm going to say that again. When families remain broken, the nation remains broken. Global Outreach's motto is showing and sharing God's love, and we plan to do both. By First, by training pastors, writing discipleship materials to equip the Ethiopian church to carry out their mission of, a loving, of loving God and loving people, and also by being a living example of God's love among the poorest people on earth. And we need you guys to be involved in that. Poverty is generational, but so is God's covenant. 
to a thousand generations. If we can reach families through their pastors, we can set Ethiopia on a trajectory of a thousand generations of blessing. So here's my application. This text is not to missionaries. Missionaries didn't exist at this time. This text is written to the church. That's you and me. It's not for, you know, pins on a missions map on the wall of a church. It's about all of us obeying Christ's command to disciple the nations. That's what he's left with, left, left us with. And we have to figure out as a church creative ways to do that. We're all sent. Some of us are sent here or there. Some go, some stay. We need both senders and goers. All kinds of experience levels, skill sets, jobs. It's not our power that saves the souls. It's the Holy Spirit. And his word is powerful for saving souls, but it's also powerful for tearing down corruption and restoring brokenness, for releasing prisoners from bondage, physically and spiritually. You're on the ground. You're striving here in your community, among your neighbors, just like the Apostle Paul was, loving them, praying for them, teaching them, preaching and discipling. You are God's voice. You are his workers on this earth to do this thing. So I was like, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will help you see what kind of roles each of you play in that. So what is the great missionary hope? That the word of God is so powerful that the Holy Spirit is so unstoppable, God so loves the nations that he can and he will and he wants to transform the dark kingdoms of the earth into kingdoms of light. So we're going to work toward that end with longing expectation. The gospel is effective to bring about flourishing in Ethiopia and America. So we must go out and obey our king. I'm going to leave you with one passage. It's my favorite psalm, Psalm 96. It's not the whole thing, but it's a chunk. Listen to God's heart for the nations of this earth. And listen for the plural plurals. I love that. The plural plurals. This is not individuals, right? Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering. Come into his courts. Worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth and say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, would you please use us to disciple the nations. Help us to be creative. Help us to think of ways that we can evangelize and church plant with a bigger goal, with the goal of seeing entire societies transformed, with seeing America transformed. We think it's so impossible, but it has been done in certain ways, in certain times. It's not always been done well. But we pray that you would give us new and creative ideas to do it well. 
to see your kingdom come to earth as it is in heaven. I pray that we would have boldness and courage to work toward that end, to pray toward that end, to take actions in our very lives that affect these things around us. First, in our families, that we would raise up godly families that can, you know, raise up more godly families and change the way things are. Change the atmosphere here. God, we pray in your mighty name. Amen. Just want to direct your attention to something before we come to the Lord's table. He said that um, uh, William Carey looked at India and said, I want to disciple this nation. And we all think, what a ridiculous thing for a man to say. I'm going to disciple LaGrange. Those things are ridiculous until we remember that the one who sent us to do it, when he sent us to do it, gave us this reminder. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This, this is a table of faith and remembrance. What we're believing and what we're remembering is that Christ was crucified. His body was broken. His blood uh, was shed. For our forgiveness, which sounds impossible, because you know how sinful you are, and I, I know how sinful I am. But not for our forgiveness only, but his blood has reconciled, Colossians 2 says, all things to himself, things in heaven and things on earth. Again, an impossibility that it, uh, it, it feels like an impossibility, but again, the table is a table of remembrance and a table of faith. This is a table where we remember that the body of Christ was broken for us. The blood of Christ was shed for us and for the world. And so we get to remember that as he has sent us out, he is also with us. So he's summoning us to himself uh, at the table.